Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions in critical times. Here's your host, Bill Kelly. And welcome once again. This is the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions for critical times. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Uh, lots going on on a global picture, and we're going to talk about those uh, through the course of the week today, but uh, a lot of focus on Ottawa, and, and I want to focus on a couple of different things about what's happening in our nation's capital. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Anytime, Bill. Thank you for having me. Can I get a point of clarification? Because I'm sure you've seen some of the chatter on social media over the uh, the last couple of days about Pierre Polyev. There's, there's the, the now famous Apple interview, uh, whether or not that was staged, etc. I mean, we can get into that, I'm, I'm sure, at some point. But the other element, too, came down to uh, a, seemingly a debate about security clearances. Uh, you know, Polyev refuses to have a security clearance, won't be able to see special documents. And uh, some of his, his advocates, I guess, are suggesting, oh, no, he was on cabinet under the Harper government. Of course, he's got a security clearance. Uh, others are saying, no, he doesn't. Uh, from what you've seen and, and what you've been able to ascertain from this, uh, what, what is the status right now? Is, is, is Mr. Polyev avoiding this or is this something that, that people are calling for that is really not even necessary? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, I think and I don't know this because I don't I don't know what his exact status is but if he was a minister under the harper government he would he must have had secret clearance but it would have expired by now probably like i had it too when i was in government and expires in 10 years like it's a, for a 10-year period mm-hmm. so i'm assuming he's it's probably lapsed for him and he's not going to get it and it seems like you know that's been it's come up a number of times like including with the foreign interference stuff yeah where the leaders were given opportunity to go and get that clearance so they could see all the things that were to be seen that can't be made public and he is he hasn't done it i mean i guess like there seems to be some possibility that's giving him leeway to be able to criticize the government for things that he hasn't seen he hasn't. He can't. Like he doesn't know what the documents say, so that he can use that sort of veil of ignorance to then go at the mm-hmm. handling things properly. And he wouldn't be able to do the same thing if he was if he saw them. I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, this is one of those things. Like it's a strategy. I, I don't know. It's going to pay off hugely. I, I think. Obviously, if he's going to be prime minister, he's going to have to get clearance then, and then he. Well, uh, that's I guess the point that a lot of people are trying to dance around here. Uh, is is if he wins the next election, becomes the prime minister, you kind of need that security clearance. And, and of course, now you've seen some of the, the accusations flying back and forth. Well, what's he hiding? Uh, I don't know that he's hiding anything. I tend to agree with you. I think it's more of a, a, a political strategy at this stage. You know, uh, see no evil, hear no evil. That way I can make up the evil. Uh, and, and that seems to be something he's, he's developing a knack for these days. But at some point, uh, to have access to these documents... Uh, you've got to have that kind of a clearance. Now, what what does that entail? This is background checks and everything. It's not just swearing an oath that you're not going to tell anybody, is it? Right. And so uh, I think they do like, they they would do things like, yeah, a criminal background check, a credit check, like that that sort of thing to just sort of see what your, see what your footprint is. And um, Mm -hmm. like, um, like you have to fill out a whole bunch of documents about all of your employment history, your travel history, where were you this place and that place? Like it, it's quite detailed. Like you, it's, it's a very thorough, like this is everything I've done over the past, you know, however many years, everywhere you've lived, that sort of thing. I mean, he's an MP. He's probably traveled all kinds of places. And like, I, I don't, I don't get the sense that he's, uh, you know, hiding anything at all like i i think that's probably not the case i think it's um one thing i was thinking as you were speaking is 
he has like part of his strategy seems to be to distance himself from what he's calling like global elites and mm-hmm. he seems to want to distance himself from the whole world of you know why are we getting involved in things that are happening abroad we should be focused on what's going on here that kind of thing and so i think the whole like it could be a, a small piece of that like just distancing himself from from the whole foreign like he, he wants to focus on trudeau and what's wrong with the trudeau government more than anything else uh, and and you're right. He seems to be strangely silent on some of the issues that most people around the world are are concentrating on the the, the conflict in Gaza, uh, the Ukraine war. I, I, you don't hear much foreign policy discussion from from Mr. Polyev at all, do you? Yeah, I, and again, like that's that's the you know you you said that better than I did, but that's that's the point I'm trying to make is that he seems to be just taking a side step away from all of that. And I mean, he's he can see his numbers are good. He can see that he like. Um, Trudeau's negatives are up. He's ahead in terms of, you know, preferences for who people would want to be prime minister. He is building trust on the economy, on the affordability issue, the housing crisis. And so he doesn't want to pivot. He doesn't want to switch to any topic that he might see some agreement with the liberals, right? Like, and he's also happy to see, um, not happy, I shouldn't put it that way, but he's, he's, he's going to sit back and let whatever divisions are happening in the liberals over some of these issues and how they're being handled. He, like we, you can see the reports today, there's divisions in the caucus over how, uh, how we're responding to the Hamas war and you know, how Trudeau responded to the, the situation with India and all the rest of it. And so if there are divisions around the prime minister on those things, I would think Polyev would probably just want to hang back and let those divisions be Trudeau's problem. And he also doesn't want to show any kind of agreement with Trudeau any, on anything. And maybe some of these foreign policy issues are actually issues that allow for a, a more united approach from the parties. And Polyev doesn't want to do that at this point. He doesn't want to get close to Trudeau. But is he going to get dragged into it nonetheless? I mean, look at Gaza and just about every city in Canada, uh, not just cities, towns. Uh, there are demonstrations almost on a weekly basis now. Uh, about treatment of Palestinians, about the the raid of, uh, on the Israelis, and it's gone back and forth. Very heated discussion, and that's an understatement, of course. Uh, and, and I know you know you're just talking about divisions within the caucus. It, it seems to be splitting the Liberal caucus because of some of the, the the mindsets that some Liberals have about who's right, who's wrong, who should be doing what. Uh, Polyev hasn't really weighed in on that. Uh, it, uh, his old boss Stephen Harper had a pretty decent relationship, I thought, kind of chummy with Netanyahu. Uh, I don't know if Polyev wants to go down that road necessarily, but uh, can he can he survive with something as important as as this in in Gaza right now by sitting on the fence? I mean, I would think that some of the old guard in the Conservative Party, to the extent that that's still left, are looking for leadership from the party. They would have a strong stance on this issue that would be very uh, salient for them, and they would have expected, um, you know, from previous leaders, uh, again, a strong strong stance on where Canada is on that, regardless of whether it was uh, aligned with a liberal position or not. Whereas Polyev seems to be appealing to a different kind of audience. He's courting a different kind of vote. And I think that the people who he's building his support with are not necessarily people who are going to be looking for him to make this a priority issue or to be verbose about it. Um, doesn't mean they don't care about it. It just means I think the people that he's he's speaking to, he's building um, he's building a constituency of people who are angry and frightened about the affordability crisis, and he doesn't necessarily want to 
um, divert from that message or, you know, what, why, I mean, and, and at this point, like he's, he's seeing his numbers go up and I don't think he's, he's building like this, this is the other weird part of it too. I don't think it's because he's building any personal popularity. He's building a, something a bit, maybe more precarious, which is he's coming across as perhaps someone who understands the house housing crisis better, the affordability crisis. He's getting to a point that more people are willing to give him a chance. That's not a ringing endorsement of Polyev. That is a, a very transactional thing. And I think he doesn't want to run the risk of saying something wrong, putting his foot in his mouth, as many politicians have done on this issue, and then had to try to backtrack and clarify. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to say anything that's going to turn anybody off or polarize, right? Like, and I, it's not, I mean, you know, political leaders still should still say where they are on things, but I wonder if it's part of a strategy to just sort of sidestep this right now to a certain extent. Well, it's that's Ronald Reagan approach to politics, isn't it? Yeah. That famous uh, debate uh, that, that Reagan had against Jimmy Carter, are you better off than you were four years ago? Uh, yeah. And you got to figure that seems to be where Polly was going on this. Exactly. On the other side of that, though, Laurie, uh, the prime minister has to have a, a stand. Uh, you know, he is a member of the G7. He's getting pressure about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, and he's seen these demonstrations that are going on. And, and I'm hearing stories, the Hill Times was reporting on this again this morning, uh, that this is causing a huge division within the Liberal caucus. Now, as, as you and I have discussed over the last couple of months now, uh, there's not a lot of love in the Liberal caucus in some circles for the prime minister right now. They're looking at the polling numbers, too, and saying, I, I listen, if this guy's going to drag the ship down, I don't want to be one of the, the casualties here. Uh, you know, he's, he's not their favorite. And uh, all of a sudden, uh, you're going to have to almost take sides in this. Uh, you know, who's right, who's wrong in Gaza and in the Middle East right now. And the prime minister can't really avoid that. What, what, what is that doing to that, that, that liberal caucus right now? Uh, it's going to be very, very difficult, I would think, to show some sense of unanimity here. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. I think we can see um, over the past number of months there's been, and even you can stretch it longer than that. Uh, there's For a while, there have been questions about whether the prime minister will take the party into the next election. There are caucus members who are very nervous about whether or not they're, they're like what kind of time they're going to get on the door when they campaign and they don't necessarily feel confident in that and i think we can see too that some of the push that has come from atlantic canadian mps on how the carbon tax is affecting people seems like is this stuff resonating with trudeau right because now he's coming back and say okay well we can talk about some we're going to go ahead on some relief from Atlant for Atlantic Canadians who are relying on home heating or oil for their home heating and things like that. Like he's, he seems like he's willing to pivot. Um, after the caucus meeting and in, in the summer, it seemed, the, after the caucus retreat, it seemed like maybe he's reconsidering some things. And so it's possible that he's not immune to concerns about his leadership. <laughs> like it's possible that he's not trying to ignore this and he's actually responding, but whether that's going to be enough. And of course, Polyev is responding to that and saying, look, this is all election games. Don't, don't believe this. This is, this isn't a real reversal of the carbon tax. This is him trying to make sure he doesn't totally get gutted in Atlantic Canada in the next election. Uh, an old name from uh, bygone liberal days came up this past weekend, that being David Hurley. Uh, David is a strategist. I know you knew him uh, very, very prominent in the Paul Martin government. And uh, as, and some would suggest in the skullduggery that got Paul Martin that the leadership of the Liberals got that that was a pretty messy situation back in the day. But he has opined over the last couple of days, no, Laurie, that the Liberals may be shying away from the carbon tax, understanding that look, we need a winner here, 
And and it was pretty easy when when Trudeau, I guess, was doing relatively well in the polls to simply say, this is the policy and it's all for the better uh, of the planet, not just for Canada. Uh, they seem to be backing off. I, I know they've made some changes to it already. Hurley suggests that maybe by the time that next federal election rolls around, uh, this might not even be a plank in their platform. Now, uh, first of all, is that realistic? I mean, you know, political strategists like Hurley uh, sometimes tend to, you know, maybe overextend just a little bit to try to get some reaction from people. Uh, but but this was a trademark policy. It still is a trademark policy for the prime minister. Can you really see he and the party trying to back away and and and, and take a, a different turn towards, towards that policy? Okay, so I think a couple of things. Like, I think um, the reason that they are looking at the carbon tax differently now is not because they have reevaluated this as a climate strategy and they think maybe it won't be effective as a climate. Like, they have been, there's been all that, right? Like, mm -hmm. like you know, I can think of, like, over the last number of months, there's been a lot of back and forth, last number of years, there's a lot of back and forth about whether the, the carbon tax is really an effective strategy to begin with. The conservatives are trying to say, yeah, we care about climate. We just don't think carbon tax is the right way to go about things. Biden has said as much. Like, you know, so there's, it's not totally clear about whether or not this is going to be uh, the only, you know, it's not going to be the only way forward, but the liberals have held on to it ideologically as part of their strategy. Um, I don't think they're abandoning that. I think the problem is that they're, the, the carbon tax, from many people's perspective, is colliding with the affordability crisis, mm -hmm. creating a, a burden that that's the, their pivot out. It's not that they're changing their environmental stance. It's not that they're giving up on climate strategies. And it's not that they'll never come back to it. It's that they're kind of listening to or seeing the writing on the wall that right now this is politically very difficult for them, particularly in parts of the country where they rely on support. If everybody in Alberta hated it, well, I think they'd still keep doing it. But if, if it's causing an issue for them in their safe ground, then yeah, they, they're going to react to that. I also think it's going to be interesting to see um, how they respond more broadly to the court challenge, right? Because the legislation that gave them some latitude in terms of managing climate policy and moving toward their, what they want to do in terms of net zero, that was struck down in court. Or, you know, that, the big part of their strategy was recently struck down in court. And so they've got to do a major re rethink on climate, even if they don't want to. And so this might be part of that too, even though they don't want to back away from the, climate, the carbon tax, they might be doing it for that reason. I'm interested to see how well they're going to do at this kind of reversal, right? Because we can see at the same time, Doug Ford is doing a reversal of things with respect to the green belt. He's saying, oh, no, mm -hmm. never mind, right? Like, sorry, we, we don't want to do things wrong. We're going to start again. We're going to cancel the, M the MZOs that, that were done improperly. We're going to you know, make everything right. And given the bump in the polls that he got, it's sort of like, hmm, you know, maybe politicians can apologize and the public will say, okay, as long as you fix it. And I'm not sure that that Trudeau has the same runway as Ford to make that kind of reversal. And I don't obviously it's not the same type of thing at all. But it's the key to like to me, it's like what what happens when a politician says, OK, never mind. You hate this. I won't do it. Trudeau's not but, a populist. Yeah, but it's one thing for, for a guy that gave it early uh, to say something like this. But if there's even a, a hint that the prime minister himself is starting to waffle on this. Yeah. How does Jack Mead Singh respond? I mean, you know, they, they, hey, I mean, just go, hey, whoa, whoa, time out here, buddy. Wait a second. Uh, you know, they've got an agreement here. And, and, if, and if Singh is looking for a backdoor to get out of this thing, 
you know, the liberals dropping this whole idea of carbon pricing all of a sudden uh, is as good a way as any for them to say, okay, deal's off. Yeah. I mean, to me, the liberals have given him back doors, front doors, side doors to get out of this, and he still hasn't walked through any of them. So I'm not sure if he's going to do it now either. Although the NDP seem to be getting closer to um, a fiscal scenario that would allow them to go to election if they wanted to do that. And it seems to me to be getting clearer that this confidence and supply agreement has not been paying off for the NDP in terms of bumping their numbers. They're not getting any cred for this. And that's only get wor- going to get worse, I think, rather than better. And I, you might have seen that um, Ed, Broad- Ed Broadbent has said recently, like they should have done this for a year, not two years. They shouldn't have let it go this long. Mm-hmm. So maybe there are conversations happening in the NDP that they're they're getting warmer to a point where they might walk away from this. And I think this is a harder one uh, to walk away from. Like it's the the carbon tax change is harder for them to manage because there's going to be a lot more pressure on them for people like they can't come out and say we held the liberals to the fire on on climate if the liberals back away from the policy and the NDP don't do anything like it's it's not just that they're propping them up it's that they can't take credit for something they were planning on taking credit for if the liberals don't do it. Yeah, which is why I guess Mr. Singh is talking more about Pharmacare and all these other elements, figuring, okay, that's going to be it. But uh, now you're getting into the deep philosophy of this uh, and, and where the prime minister is going to go. One quick point on that, though. We were talking about some possible dissension within the ranks of the Liberal caucus. Uh, I think it's probable, not just possible, because of some of the things that are happening right now. Uh, we've seen this in the past, Laurie, whether it's with, uh, with well, not so much Stephen Harper, but certainly Brian Mulroney, uh, jumping before they get pushed. Uh, well, you know, you could suggest that, that John Kretchen did that too. Uh, but Kretchen was the sort of guy that didn't ever want to leave the impression that he was being told what to do or that he was bowing to the pressure. That's just not in his DNA. Trudeau seems to be pushing back almost on principle right now. Like, don't tell me when I'm leaving. Don't tell me what I'm going to do here. Uh, some going to the point of even suggesting that maybe he's sticking around just despite some of the people in caucus that are that are you know waiting for him to slip on that banana peel. Uh, does he stick around just for the hell of it, or, or just to show them, or or does he does he read the tea leaves here like others have done and simply said it's time for me to back down? Well, right now I'm I'm wondering if it's sort of too late for that. I mean, he can do it whenever he wants, but would he be leaving the party in a really tough spot as we seem to be getting closer whenever that election is going to be, it still might be two years away, but if he wanted to leave the party in anything other than a miserable spot, he'd have to do this sooner rather than later to give them the runway to choose a new leader, because it's not like there's anybody in the wings like Kretchen would not be pushed because he wouldn't let Paul Martin push. him. And there's no person that we know of that's like creating that dynamic with Trudeau. And so it's harder, I think, for people to get their minds around what would happen when you don't know who the other person would be. Like Martin walked into the prime minister's office at that point. It was a coronation for him. That's not clear at this point. What the heck would a liberal leadership race look like? We don't know who would be in it. What if no, like, what if some savior doesn't show up? Because they need a savior at this point. They need a savior just as badly as they needed it when it was Trudeau. So I think it would be a huge gamble at this point. I'm not sure whether, um, and I mean, I can imagine if somebody came in and they didn't have the kind of name recognition that Trudeau did and nobody does, uh, would the conservative machine not define them immediately? Because that's what the conservatives are great at, is defining someone before they define themselves. 
Well, they certainly did that to Stefan or Stefan Dion, and, and and well, and to a certain extent, I guess Ignatieff at the same time. Oh, big time. Uh, and and th- those guys were dead in the water before they right. even got started, simply because of the the way that the the conservatives went after them. And you have to wonder, I mean, because we've heard names, you know, of, of whether it's Anita Anand or uh, Minister Jolie or, or whomever may be interested in this. Uh, but on the other hand, when people are really angry. Uh, like in 2015, when Trudeau won his big majority government, I mean, there were an awful lot of people in this country and a lot of in the NDP caucus that thought, you know, Tom Mulcair was going to be the next prime minister. And uh, he didn't. He didn't win. And a funny thing happened on the way to the policy convention a couple of months later that they basically dumped him, said, Tom, you're gone. That's it. Uh, and they didn't have any. I mean, it took almost a year, didn't it, to, to get Jagmeet Singh in there. And there are still some people in the NDP caucus that don't like him as the leader and wish they'd gone in another direction. Uh, this is going to be, I don't think, a very bloodless uh, changeover when, in fact, Mr. Trudeau decides to either step down or get pushed. Um, I guess, can you choose your poison here? I mean, does he step down before this? I'll uh, my Brian Mulroody and let Kim Campbell take a lot of the heat for this. Uh, or does he wait until after this, like Mulcair did, and, and get the heave-ho at a, at a leadership convention or a, you know, a vote of confidence, et cetera, like this? It, it, it probably is not going to end well. Uh, for the Liberals and maybe even not for Mr. Trudeau. I think if there was a time for him to walk away on a high note, that's over. Like unless some weird series of events happens that pumps him back up again. I think even now, right? Like if he walked away tomorrow, it would be, you know, like this has been a long parade of your popularity draining. And if that's going to happen, like it's going to happen to any political leader, you run out of capital. And you run out of, um, you know, you just sort of, the, the shine comes off it. But I think in his case, there, like, the again, the idea of leaving on a high note, leaving when things are good, I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to happen for him at this point. Whether you want to take it on yourself, I think there's something about him that really wants, personally, a confrontation with Polyev. I think that's, like, to me, they're, they're, dynamic the tension between them is something on its own and Mm -hmm. i think that trudeau is not going to step away and let somebody else go at go at polyev because trudeau is an excellent campaigner love him or hate him he does really well on the campaign trail he comes alive he stops with the kind of what seem like rehearsed lines sometimes and he speaks much more directly um he seems to be a bit a bit angrier he seems to be a bit more fired up and Maybe he, you know, it's that sort of energy that could deliver something for them. But I mean, God, when you look at the polls in Ontario, even like the Liberals are not in, good, in a good spot. Yeah, and uh, and you've got uh, Premier Ford and, and Mayor Chow now asking for more federal money, and uh, they they can't afford to lose the GTA. I mean, if if they have any chance at all. But yeah. you're right. I mean, the last two elections, uh, you know, the forecasters were all saying that Trudeau was going to get his butt kicked there too, and he's still in the corner office. Uh, we shall see. Interesting developments in the nation's capital. Uh, Laurie, always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for being with us on the show today. Thank you for having me, Bill. Thank you. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. Uh, and that's it for uh, for this edition of the Bill Kelly Podcast. Uh, pick us up anytime. Spread the word. And uh, and by all means, of course, we're always looking for your feedback, too. Uh, you can reach us at this is Bill Kelly at Gmail and uh, give us your ideas about future shows and what you've heard already on this one. Till next time, I'm Bill Kelly. You take care. This podcast was brought to you by Rebecca Wizens and her team at Wizens Law. Rebecca Wizens is a 20-time winner of the Hamilton Reader's Choice Awards for their exceptional client care 
and legal practice specializing in personal injury, car accidents, accidental falls, and Wilson Estates. Now, if you or a loved one have been seriously injured, or if you want to make sure that your family is taken care of for the future with a will and powers of attorney, call Rebecca Wizens, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. When life happens, you can rely on Rebecca Wizens and Wizens Law. And trust me, Rebecca is my wife, and I don't know what I'd do without her. That's Wizens Law, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. Subscribe to my Substack for timely news updates and commentary straight to your inbox. Let's keep the conversation going. I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Let me know what you think we should be talking about next by contacting me through my website at www.billkelly.co. Thanks for tuning in. This is Bill Kelly. Till next time, you take care. Thank you.